This is Guns and Butter. government put on TV and radio and so forth these taped phone calls that it says it had tapped phones of these activists who who were organizing the uprising in the um, lead up to this Jesus Court thing and, and they had in theory or at least according to these tapes orchestrated where women and children would go to Turkey would tell the foreigners and the foreign press in the world that government soldiers were killing each other meanwhile they were organizing an insurrection an armed insurrection that would try to take on the Syrian army and start a militarized insurgency. And, you know, we've, we've got two conflicting stories. It looks like it isn't just innocent people being shot by bad regime. That in fact, there was a, uh, a plan to try to ambush government soldiers, that this was partially successful. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Joshua Landis. Today's show, upheaval in Syria. Dr. Landis is director of the Center for Middle East Studies and associate professor at the University of Oklahoma. He writes SyriaComment.com, a daily newsletter on Syrian politics. He has lived for over 14 years in the Middle East. Having been brought up in Beirut, he returned to the region in the 1980s to teach in Beirut and study at universities in Damascus, Cairo, and Istanbul. Most recently, he spent 2005 in Syria and lived several months in Damascus in 2007. We discuss the evolution of the protest movement in Syria, media coverage and distortion, the Syrian opposition, the Turkey-Iran-Syria axis, Russian interests in Syria, and what the fall of Assad would mean. Dr. Joshua Landis, welcome. It's a pleasure being with you. When did the unrest and opposition to the government in Syria begin? Where in Syria did the protests begin? And what were your initial thoughts about the unrest? Well, they began on March 15th. And they began with a few very small um, protests in Damascus by traditional opposition leaders, human rights leaders, Nobody paid too much attention to those because they, they seemed to be failing. They didn't get more than 100 people. Then, Dera, this uh, poor agricultural district near the Jordanian border, lit on flames. And the Arab Spring hit Syria in earnest. I, I think like many other Syria watchers, believed that Bashar al-Assad would uh, dodge the bullet of the Arab Spring that somehow Syria was different. And he was, you know, telling the world that he had been reforming, at least economically, that he was popular with his people, which many believed, and that because he took a conservative position, an anti-American, anti-Israel position, he would be popular and preserved from this spring that was hitting pro-American countries like Egypt and Tunisia. That was all wrong. And the government mishandled the demonstrations in Dedan terribly. Fifteen kids, school kids, painted anti-government slogans on the wall, mimicking what was going on in Egypt. The government arrested them, beat them up, um, borderline torture. And the tribes of the region and the conservative family structure of Dedan went on 
you know, just rose up. Big demonstrations, and the government shot people, killed a bunch of people. Instead of coming in and apologizing, the president should have taken the issue in hand and, uh, and tried to address the situation. He hit it with more force. And that was the beginning of what we have now, a giant conflagration that has spread from Dara up to Humps in the center of the city, the third biggest city, then to Hama, well, it went to Banyas, Latakia, other places along the coast, Jebli. And in this area, it's really been settling in in all the major towns and cities that circle the Alawite Mountains, where Sunnis and Alawites live together cheek by jowl. What can you tell us about the protests in the coastal town of Banyas in April? Describe the media distortion and disinformation regarding the ambush in Banyas in which nine Syrian soldiers were shot dead and 30 wounded. Well, immediately, once this protest began, Syria began kicking out foreign uh, correspondents. It's never had a very friendly posture towards foreign correspondents, but it's always let some in. It began to kick them out. Uh, eventually, it kicked out Al Jazeera and so forth. This made a very difficult position for Westerners to report on what was going on in Syria. What foreign reporters did is they teamed up with activists of the rebellion who were sitting in Lebanon, other foreign capitals, using Skype, social media, and basically reformulating uh, their spin on what was going on in Syria wholesale. This was the best they could do. Very hard to cross-check. The government wasn't giving their own spoke version out. And when they did put out version, it was always a day or two late. It was never translated into English. A very flat-footed government response. In, in essence, the government completely ceded the media war, believing that if it could win on the ground, everything would be fine. That was not the case. And Benias, which was early on in the uprising, raised a lot of problems. And it's, it's where I noticed that the story was being gotten wrong because my wife, who is an Alawite, has a cousin that we know fairly well. The kids play together in a mountain village during the summer, that sort of thing. And he's a colonel in the Syrian army, and many Alawites have at least one family member serving in the military or security or the state structure someplace. There were nine uh, there were a bunch of soldiers going down two military vehicles on the highway towards Banyas. They were riddled full of bullets by uh, people who ambushed them on the side of the road and uh, near a bridge. The opposition told a story that they had refused to um, take orders and shoot against peaceful unarmed demonstrators. And therefore, the security forces in back of them shot them in the back and this was our first major uh, instance of mutiny, mayhem, defections, and regime on regime violence, if you will. That story has, that line has been persistent ever since, that of defections and, and, and killing of security forces. What I discovered was that this was not the case at all. That in fact, you know, as we discovered later, this was not in front of demonstrations, there hadn't been orders to shoot, and these were not security people killing security people. In fact, it was a well-planned um, ambush by well-armed opposition people. We're still not sure who they belong to. Um, anyway, they were mowed down. And, and the Western press got 
the story completely wrong because, you know, not not their fault, but they had no other version to um, to take. So they took what was handed to them by the opposition. What do you make of the claims that the Syrian government gave orders to fire upon soldiers that refused to shoot demonstrators? I guess what you're saying is that that turned out to be a false story. Yes, uh, you know, we have seen persistent claims by the opposition that the military is shooting its own people. So far, I don't believe any of those have been corroborated. Um, it's hard to know. You know, the regime has used a high level of brutality. I don't want to be protecting the regime in any way. They have uh, come down hard on the opposition. They've moved into territories that have risen up and been very harsh. They're in a desperate struggle to suppress this uprising before the foreign community does anything and it intervenes in any way and before it can spread further. Economically, Syria is pressed and it's using money it doesn't have right now to continue to try to subsidize uh, lower class Syrians and put out this rebellion. If it goes on for a long time more, uh, for much longer, uh, things are going to become much more distressed in Syria. So the Syrian regime is using a lot of brutality. I don't want to suggest otherwise, but I don't, we don't really have firm indications that the military um, is defecting in big numbers. There have been well corroborated evidence of conscripts abandoning the army and, for example, going to Turkey or Jordan, hiding out in Syria. But they haven't formed a rebel army. They aren't joining the other side and bringing their arms into what looks like a rebel army. And we don't know, you know, it doesn't seem that the Syrian forces are shooting on themselves. That is something that seems to be, at least until this point, manufactured by the opposition in order to give courage to opposition forces and to hopefully, you know, from their point of view, encourage more and more military people to defect, uh, to say that this is the, the, the noble and the nationalist thing to do, which is to abandon the regime. So far, uh, that doesn't look like it's happening. The, the army has remained loyal to the regime. This is not Egypt. It's not Tunisia, where the military turned their back on their presidents and um, gave them the hee-ho. Here, there's considerable loyalty, and it's turning Syria into a real battleground. The Washington Post reported that the U.S. State Department has been secretly funding Syrian opposition parties and groups. Who are the Syrian opposition leaders? For instance, what can you tell us about former Syrian Vice President Abdul Halim Kadam? What does he represent? And you know, further, what are his links to former slain Lebanese Prime Minister Rafiq Hariri and Saudi King Abdullah? Well, this is... In 2005, Abdul Halim Khaddam played an important role in trying to organize a Syrian opposition. At the time, in February 2005, Rafiq al-Hariri, the Lebanese Prime Minister, was blown up in a giant car bomb. Western fingers immediately and Lebanese fingers immediately pointed at Syria and said, Syria has been occupying Lebanon for the last 25 years. This is clearly their doing. And a UN investigation was set up uh, in order to try to implicate the Syrians. And the first report, which has been largely discredited at this point, pointed the finger very firmly at the president's family. Now, at this time, Halim Khaddam 
left Syria, joined the opposition, teamed up with the Muslim Brotherhood that's uh, in exile in London, and formed the National Salvation Front, and tried to get the Bush administration and get the Bush administration to really invest in and sponsor this opposition force as a counter to the Syrian government. The Bush administration refused to do that. They looked at them. They allowed Khadam to open an office in Washington, D.C. They sort of checked out their teeth and, and so forth. But in the end, they were unwilling to back this ex-Bathist, who had helped rule Syria for 30 years, teamed up with the Muslim Brotherhood, for which there was great distaste in Washington, the notion that somehow they would support an Islamic organization to take over Syria. So that came to nothing. When Bush left the White House, the organization dissolved, and the Syrian opposition went back to its traditional factualism until the Arab Spring, until March of this year, when new leadership has begun to emerge amongst the Syrian opposition. And that has been driven by these young activists who are leading this new Arab Springs uprising. They're in their 20s and early 30s. Some of them are in the West. Some are in Syria. Beginning in 1925, the Bush administration began to earmark a certain amount of money. We believe it's around $12 million so far. Uh, earmarked money to support the Syrian opposition. And they began to cultivate some of these young activists at the time helped them build big websites, get them computers, expertise, uh, give them classes in how to, you know, social networking and stuff like that, and how to build an opposition. American operatives had helped do this in Ukraine and other places, and they were shifting this to the Syrian front, if you will, to try to take down the Syrian government, at least put some pressure on it. Those people... It looked like the government, Washington, had largely abandoned them and their efforts went to nothing, uh, were in vain. But because Obama began to try to reconnect, start negotiations again with Iran and Syria, those came to nothing. Then the Arab Spring hit and Obama began to support opposition in the way that Bush had. So he found that there was this network of opposition, uh, secular young people who had been supported by Bush who were still there in the wings. And uh, those are the people that have been uh, speaking out and helping to organize the opposition from the West and creating large Facebook sites and so forth. Many of them are, not all of them. But uh, they played a very important role um, in helping to move and shape the message in a secular fashion, in a liberal fashion, in a fashion that the West can embrace, democracy versus tyranny, etc. I'm speaking with Oklahoma University professor, Dr. Joshua Landis. Today's show, Upheaval in Syria. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Would it be fair to say that the Syrian opposition is both a peaceful democratic movement and at the same time, infiltrated and directed by foreign powers with their own agendas for the region? Well, that's certainly a loaded question. Um, there is no doubt that this movement, as we see it now, is a very popular movement. It has deep roots within Syrian society. Places like Dera and, and just the Shahur, most recently in the north of the country, are both poor agricultural districts that have chafed under uh, 
Ba'athist rule for some time, especially just at Shahuwa in the north, which played an active role uh, in supporting the Muslim Brotherhood in the 1970s and 80s when it, it, Syria almost collapsed in the civil war, and has um, provided many of the jihadists for the Iraq troubles in Iraq more recently. But it's, it's a region that's poor, it's conservative, they're not jobs, the young people, high birth rate, lots of young people with no prospects for the future and little to lose. They do not like this regime. And, and the Alawites that provide the sort of head of this regime come from a region right next door. And there's been friction between the Sunnis of this northern area, agricultural area, and the Alawites in the mountains next door. So the roots are deep in Syria. Now, are foreign powers playing a role? Yes, they are. As we know, George Bush uh, provided $12 million to help develop an opposition uh, that was secular. The West has helped smuggle in um, uh, satellite phones and so forth. And more recently, there have been stories about Internet evading ways to keep the Internet secret and so forth. So high technology. The U.S. is trying to help the opposition maintain open connections to the outside world. Now, Iran, of course, is counterbalancing that and is trying to help the Syrian government to stamp out this, uh, this movement. So... Uh, we don't know how much funding. There have been rumors that outside members, many people from Saudi Arabia, perhaps individuals from Saudi Arabia, Lebanese, so forth, are funding the opposition. Certainly many Syrian businessmen abroad have begun to, who've got foreign passports, if you will, are helping to finance meetings of the opposition and so forth. We don't really know how much this is being funded or manipulated by the outside. The Syrian government maintains that there's a very big outside component to this. Um, the Syrian activists themselves say, look, it, all the heavy lifting is being done by people inside the country. They're the ones who are getting killed. They're doing this because they've been ruled for 40 years without any freedom uh, by a government that's failed them, that hasn't produced jobs, that isn't uh, allowing a future for their young people. And so this is a natural outcome of that bad government. Is there evidence for Western media fakery? What can you tell us about the social website Syrian Revolution 2011 operated in Sweden? Also, what can you tell us about the website All for Syria? Right. Um, Syria Revolution 2011 is run by people in Sweden. The chief spokesman, Fida, is the head of the Muslim Brotherhood in Sweden. He is a very skilled and um, competent guy. Uh, I've written about him a few times on my site. When people discovered he was a Muslim Brotherhood guy instead of one of these secular activists, people made a big thing to try to indicate the revolution was being driven by the Muslim Brotherhood. There is no indication that the revolution is being driven by the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood is a powerful organization traditionally in Syria. It's the only real opposition force that's tried to take on this regime in the past. Uh, there's no doubt that Syrian society has become much more pious and um, fundamentalist, if you will, in the last 20 years. Certainly on the streets you notice this. Uh, women in the 1960s did not wear the headdress very much. Certainly middle class, upper class women did not. They tried to dress like the West. Today, that situation is very different. If you go to the University of Damascus today, probably about 80% 
of the women will be wearing hijab, you know, just a scarf around the hair to cover the hair. But that in the past, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it probably was only 20, 25% of the women wore hijab. So things have changed in that sense. And one can expect the Muslim Brotherhood to play an important role in this opposition. It's been divided. Its ranks are divided. There is a traditional leadership that's quite old, uh, stayed, and doesn't know much about Facebook. But new guys like Fida, who is running this uh, Facebook page, have been dynamic, outspoken. They talk about democracy. They've worked well with the other activists. This is a new generation, and there's already some friction between the old and new generation. Um, as, as young, much more tech-savvy, uh, worldly activists step in and begin to play a big role in this revolution. So that's, that's the Revolution 2011 page. It's got 200,000 adherents. It's the biggest single Facebook page in trying to organize, orchestrate the media face of this uh, uprising. They get raw footage from videos that's sent to them by email. They put them on YouTube. They give a framework. Sometimes they give subtitles in English so that the foreign reporters know what's going on. They mount montages. They put music to them, often very stirring music. And they create funny videos, all kinds of videos that are montages of different clips, you know, using president's speeches from a long time ago, showing hypocrisy, uh, lies, you name it. And this is what you know, the foreign journalists have to weigh through because they're getting a lot of stuff that's fed to them. And some things have been clearly false. We have a, a number of YouTube things that were, for example, Hezbollah actions uh, killing people in Lebanon from three years ago being resurrected and put with some Syrian names and so forth and trying to be fobbed off as what Syrian soldiers are doing to people. But that's not the majority of what's coming out of these websites. You're getting a lot of raw footage, and it's showing some pretty horrible things about uh, repression. And, and in many ways, this is a new um, type of war. In the Gulf Wars, in the Iraq War, reporters were embedded with American soldiers. The type of violence they could record was very prescribed. Here, when you see violence on the streets of Syria, People with their camera phones and small digital cameras are running straight up to people in their death rows, uh, putting the camera into their face and getting what are extremely grisly pictures. And, you know, when people have their heads shot off and other things, the camera's right there. You see the blood spurting out. You see the brains dripping out of heads. I mean, this is shocking footage that's coming out day in, day out. Al Jazeera uh, the uh, Doha-based, the biggest Middle Eastern TV channel, has been cycling this footage that they're getting out uh, over and over, putting it in loops. And it is, it's very devastating. It's made a big impact on the international scene. Now, All for Syria, a site that's run by uh, Ayman Abdelnour, a Christian um, ex-Bath Party member, uh, I know him quite well. He was a good friend of mine in Damascus when I lived there in 2005. Um, he migrated away from the regime and, you know, worked uh, in some ways with the Bush administration. He was, I, I'm not sure exactly the story, but 
I think, exiled from Syria. He moved to um, the Emirates, Dubai, with his family, a very lovely family and kids, and opened up all for Syria. This website, which had been opened in, in, in Syria when he was living there, had gone offline a few times. The regime had shut it down so forth. But he got a brand new site that was much more elaborate than anything he'd had before. And obviously quite a bit of assistance, at least technologically and so forth, must have gotten some money. And set up an important a website that was beaming stories into Syria all the time. He had a big email list of at least 10,000 people that he could send to people's email addresses. So they didn't, you know, if the regime tried to block it, he could get in. Uh, it's a very important site um, because lots of Syrians subscribe to it. And it was in many ways the most important vehicle um, written vehicle, other than, you know, regime papers and so forth, for getting to the Syrian people. Well, what would the fall of Assad mean for Damascus, Hezbollah in Lebanon, Hamas, and Iran? Well, for Damascus and Syrians, much depends on how it falls, if it falls. You know, many people hoped that President Assad would you know, assemble a constitutional committee and basically hand off power and usher in an age when the Alawites stop dominating government and they pass it off to the Sunnis somehow. And these utopian dreams, uh, I think, appealed to many people who hoped that Syria would avoid a civil war the way Lebanon went. And that hasn't happened. The regime has dug in its heels. It's, it's completely demonized the opposition as the opposition has demonized the regime. The two camps have split. Syria's really split 50-50 these days. Uh, very scary. And it looks like uh, that that could move towards civil war. Now, this is a situation that is scary to all of Syria's neighbors. If Syria were to go the way of Iraq, because it's a multi-ethnic, multi-confessional religion society, like Iraq or Lebanon, and therefore if it followed that example by splitting up along religious lines in a long civil war, it could spit out millions of refugees. Iraq disgorged over two million refugees, two million displaced internally, that's four million total. If Syria did the same thing, uh, Turkey would be inundated, Lebanon, Jordan, uh, it would be a big mess for the region. It borders on everything. It is the big transportation route from north to south. And when you think of it, you know, if goods are coming from Europe or Turkey towards Egypt or Saudi Arabia, they can only go today through Syria. Iraq has been a black hole for well over a decade, for two decades, since 1990, the Gulf War of 1990, when sanctions, severe sanctions were put on to Iraq. There has been no transit trade through Iraq. So everything has gone through Syria. If Syria falls apart, all transit trade, gas lines, oil lines, uh, will come to a screeching halt. It'll be extremely disruptive. Lebanon is frightened of confessional implications of this. And um, it would be, you know, in some ways, the Christian right of Lebanon uh, has been applauding what they hope will be the downfall of this Alawite Syrian regime that has been a a plague for them for the last 30 years of Syrian occupation in Lebanon. But on the other hand, they're frightened. They're frightened because 
to see a minority regime like the Assad regime, which has protected Christians so carefully and appealed to Christians in Syria, is frightening because it would mean another Sunni government. It would mean a diminution of Christian power in the region and perhaps the end of what has been a great safe haven for Christians in the heart of the Middle East. And, uh, and Christians have worked themselves into great anxiety about the troubles in Syria because the, the 20th century was a terrible century for Middle Eastern Christians. Turkey had a 20% Christian population before the First World War. Ethnic cleansing took place during the war and after. Uh, all of those Christians were either killed, like the Armenians, or uh, a big population change with Greece and other places. They were booted out of the country. There are hardly any Christians in Turkey today. Syria took many of those Christians. So Lebanese civil war brought a sort of odd end to Christian real power in Lebanon, which the French had created. So should the Alawite regime in Syria collapse, it will be one of the last safe havens uh, and friendly governments to Middle Eastern Christians. Iraq, the fall of Saddam Hussein was very bad for Christians in Iraq. There's been ethnic cleansing. About half of Iraq, more than half of Iraqis Christians have fled the country or been kicked out or killed. Uh, churches have been attacked. And today in Egypt, many Christians are looking at the, 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 the Arab Spring in Egypt and saying, boy, cops are getting attacked. Fundamentalists are going to come to government. And they're, they're pulling their hair and, and beating their chests about this. So Syria, very troubling to them. And that makes it not good for uh, Lebanon necessarily. Sectarian chaos is not good for Lebanon. So, you know, Turkey could get millions of refugees. Israel loses a regime that has been their best guarantor of safety on their northern border. So that's the, um, th those are the difficulties. And Saudi Arabia is extremely conservative power, does not want the Arab Spring to continue to roll closer to its borders. It does not want Syria to collapse and to be overtaken by revolution. I'm speaking with Oklahoma University professor, Dr. Joshua Landis. Today's show, Upheaval in Syria. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So you're saying that Saudi Arabia does not want Syria to be overtaken by revolution? Well, Saudi Arabia is torn. I mean, many Saudis would love to see the end of the Nalawite regime, which is the sort of beachhead for Iranian and Shiite power into the Middle East, which arms and helps arms and certainly transits Iranian arms to Hezbollah and is allied with Hezbollah, Shiite power in Lebanon, a competitor to the Hariri people who are very closely allied with Saudi Arabia. So, yes, there are many reasons why Saudi Arabia would like to see regime change in Syria. On the other hand, this Arab Spring has terrified Saudi Arabia. The king came out early and said that he supported Assad against foreign plots and meddling. And he used Assad's exact language for what was happening in Syria. Now, that doesn't mean that individual Saudis and uh, certain elements within Saudi Arabia won't fund, support, and perhaps arm rebels in Syria. They would love to see a Sunni government. But they're also uh, very frightened of this winds of change because if Syria goes, Perhaps Jordan could go. It would be, revolution would be at their doorstep once again. And already with Yemen and Bahrain, it's scary enough as it is. 
Was there an armed insurgency in Jisar al-Shagur? What have been the problems reporting on the battles there? Now, this has been in the news just in the last few days. Right. Jisar al-Shagur, women and children, fled Turkey first days of Jisar al-Shagur. And uh, their story was almost uniformly that there had been defections, mutiny, mayhem in Jisar al-Shagur, that lots of young enlisted men had gone in there and been asked to shoot at defenseless demonstrators. They had refused, and their commanding officers or others had immediately mowed them down. Then they started shooting at the officers, and there was this big conflagration where lots of Syrian soldiers killed each other. That story, um, we're still waiting for some confirmation. The Syrian government put on TV and radio and so forth these taped phone calls that it says it had tapped phones of these activists who, who were organizing the uprising in the um, lead-up to this Jesus-Hoor thing. And, and they had, in theory, or at least according to these tapes, orchestrated, where women and children would go to Turkey, would tell the foreigners and the foreign press in the world that government soldiers were killing each other. Meanwhile, they were organizing an insurrection, an armed insurrection, that would try to take on the Syrian army and start a militarized insurgency. And, you know, we've, we've got two conflicting stories. It looks like that the original story is not completely true. There, it isn't just innocent people being shot by bad regime. That, in fact, there was a, uh, a plan to try to ambush government soldiers, that they, this was partially successful. One mass grave of 10 soldiers with heads chopped off, was been uncovered. The regime says this is done by uh, opposition people. They've put out phone calls with opposition people talking about how to bury them and so forth. The opposition says, no, these are the people who the regime has buried because they shot them, their own soldiers. Um, I'm not sure that's true. It's very hard to corroborate. But it seems like many less than 120, the original story of soldiers killed, were killed in this operation. Quite a few civilians were killed. Definitely scores of civilians have been killed so far. But nothing like the original reports. What role is Turkey playing in the unrest in Syria? Are you surprised at the statements critical of Assad coming out of Ankara? Turkey recently hosted a conference in Anatolia of 300 or so Syrian oppositionists, many of whom were Kurdish nationalists or members of the Muslim Brotherhood. What about Turkey? Well, um, Turkey, in the last 15 years, Turkey has emerged as a very close ally of Syria. And Erdogan and Assad became good friends in many ways. They dismantled a very hostile border. They got rid of all these requirements. They established a common economic zone for Syria, duty-free investments going back and forth, foreign uh, investment in the two countries and business trade had skyrocketed from only a few hundred million a year to uh, two billion a year and projected to go up to five billion in a few years. Now, all that has come crashing down with this uprising because because it's put Turkey on the spot. Do they support authoritarianism in this Alawite regime or are they going to support the opposition, largely Sunni, calling for democracy and so forth? This has put the Turkish regime in a very awkward position. They are a democracy. They have just emerged as a democracy, having carried out a very bitter struggle with the Turkish military 
which has ruled Turkey very firmly. And so they see themselves as uh, the liberators of Turkey and the, the banner carriers for democracy in the entire Middle East. And they want to be the leaders of this in the Middle East. How can they support Assad against the insurgency? That became the problem. How can they support minoritarians against the Sunnis? In an electoral situation, very difficult to do these things. So they've come out and they've condemned Syria. This has caused great bitterness on the part of the regime. Now they're taking refugees, they're letting reporters in. They have, as you say, they sponsored a meeting of the Muslim Brotherhood in Istanbul several months ago, and most recently in Antalya, this 300-person meeting of the opposition members to, to try to get them all, all the elements of the opposition together under one roof. Syria has been very angered by that. Um, but in many ways, for Turkey, it would make most sense to have a Sunni government that was democratic next door in Syria, um, then, in a sense, Turkey would be reproducing itself. And every government wants its own image uh, next door and amongst its neighbors. But that said, Turkey is going to face ever greater difficulties because they don't want civil war. They don't want a million refugees. They don't want a Syrian enemy. They want zero problems on their borders and with their neighbors. That's their foreign policy. So it's a very difficult position that Turkey is going to find itself in. Well, how would you fit the Syrian protests into the larger question of Sunni versus Shia in the Middle East? Well, the Alawite regime is Shiite and seen to be Shiite by many people throughout the Middle East by, by Sunnis. Technically, it's a, uh, certainly a Shiite offshoot, but considered quite heterodox. But it's Shiite, and it's made common cause with Iran, it's empowered Hezbollah, it's worked closely with Hezbollah. All of these allies, which are willing to put pressure on Israel and are enemies of Israel, because Syria, a big hunk of Syrian territory, the Golan Heights that borders with Israel, was taken and conquered by Israel in the 1967 war when Israel attacked Syria. That borderland, Syria wants back. There are 300,000 Syrians who own land and are refugees from that area. Israel expelled over 100,000 Syrians from the Golan Heights and, and refused to let them to come back to their houses when they took it. They put Israeli settlers in their place. So Syria is an enemy of Israel, and its foreign policy reflects that. It is allied with Israel's enemies, and it has had tense relations with Israel's friends. And um, that is the Shiites largely, who have been the most willing to fight Israel recently, because Jordan, Egypt, in many ways Saudi Arabia, have come to peace and made peace with Israel. Uh, Hamas, of course, a Sunni organization amongst the Palestinians, has been an ally of Syria, so that's not Shiite. But the Shiite crescent, some people talk about it, Iran, now stretching through Iraq, thanks to the U.S. Army, um, Syria, with this Alawite regime, Hezbollah, southern Lebanon, that is an alliance that should Syria fall and the Sunnis take over, who are aligned with Saudi Arabia, for example, would be devastating to Iran and Hezbollah. Would be very good for Israel if there's a stable government in Syria that doesn't try to you know, foster Palestinian nationalism and would give up in this struggle. How has the Syrian economy been affected by the protests? Uh, the economy is really the vulnerable point 
of the Syrian regime. At the beginning of this uprising, Syria started throwing money at, at the problem. It had been reducing subsidies on a number of important goods, most importantly, fuel oil, which people use to run their cars, to heat their houses, and so forth. Uh, that subsidy had been reduced, um, had been in the process of being taken away. Syria returned it. Today, a liter of fuel oil costs 20 piastres. That's, that's uh, less than 50 cents, uh, which is about one-fourth of what it costs in Turkey. So there's tons of smuggling. It cost the government a fortune. Government salaries were raised by 30 percent. Um, and the military effort is evidently very expensive. All foreign investment has come to a standstill. There's no tourism, which is believed to be about 15% of the Syrian economy's uh, foreign exchange. There's a lot of pressure on Syria economically. How the government is going to pay those receipts is not clear. Now, Iraq and Libya both have lots of oil that uh, have been funding their governments staying in power. You know, in the short term, Syria is okay, but in the medium term, it's not clear where it gets money. Is there a Turkey-Iran-Syria axis? And if the Assad government falls, does this mean the end of this alliance? Well, that's a good question. You know, what we've seen emerge in the last five years is a northern alliance, if you will, call it that. Uh, Turkey set itself up as the friend of Iran, Syria, increasingly and emergingly, as an Iraq government establishes itself, that's been drawn in Lebanon. There's a free trade zone that was set up recently last year between Turkey, Iraq, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria. Those are the, the countries that have been affected with, with the promise that Iran could be drawn in. And, and Turkey's run a lot of interference for Iran with the United States. This block was a challenge, a challenge to the moderate, quote unquote, regimes that the United States had been assembling, Saudi Arabia. Egypt under Mubarak, Jordan, and Israel, which had established this sort of Sunni moderate countries. Of course, Israel is the wild card in there, but a powerful bloc that was opposing Iran. And Turkey really stepped into this Middle Eastern scene and reorganized it to a certain degree and tried to set itself up as the kingpin that would unite the northern countries and in a sense, moderate Iran, Syria, Hezbollah, try to bring them back into the fold, but uh, strengthening Turkey as it did so. Now, if Syria goes down and Turkey sides with you know, NATO and the West against Assad's regime, that's going to create a lot of friction between Turkey and Iran, because Iran is Syria's major sponsor. And it's going to... Um, you know, blow apart this free trade zone because Syria will be a, a smoking hole. And it does, just weakens the whole Middle Eastern region and puts an end to this emerging northern tier, at least for the time being. I'm speaking with Oklahoma University professor, Dr. Joshua Landis. Today's show, Upheaval in Syria. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. There is a Russian naval base in Syria. The U.S. has moved a guided missile cruiser in the Black Sea for naval exercises with Ukraine. Russia is blocking any attempt by the U.S. to make a case for intervention in Syria as it did in Libya. 
Would so-called regime change in Syria mean that Russia would lose its only military foothold in the Mediterranean? Well, that's certainly a Russian fear. And it does seem that there is this larger geostrategic struggle going on over Syria. Uh, Syria is important to Russia. You've mentioned the big naval base that used to be open to Russian shipping. Now, the Russian fleet in the Black Sea largely collapsed after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Ukraine became an independent state. Ukraine carries out military operations with the United States. So when we see that this um, new technology is being introduced into Black Sea by America, it's upset the Russians. The Russians see this as a way of America twisting their arm to not to veto UN measures condemning Syria. Russia so far has done it. Russia was very upset with what happened in Libya because it went along with a condemnation and then no-fly zone, I mean, sort of got backed into this and then the no-fly zone turned into a Western military operation to kill Gaddafi. Well, you know, Russia was very upset the way the West has taken over the Libya condemnation and no-fly zone and turned it really into an offensive operation that looks like it'll have the West playing a very big role in Libya for years to come. Now, Russia certainly does not want to see anything like that happen in Syria. Syria's been an ally. Syria's an important card in Russia's sort of geostrategic influence in the Middle East. It gives Russia a frontline role in the Arab-Israeli conflict. It allowed Russia to put pressure on Israel. For example, when the Georgian uh, revolution looked like it's about to take place, um, Russia intervened uh, because Israel was arming the Georgians. And uh, Russia didn't want Israel to do this. So Russia said, well, we're going to give arms to the Syrians. And, and immediately, Israelis flew up to Russia and they stopped helping the Georgians with military arms. And the Russians started curbing their influence in Syria, their military transfers to Syria. So this was very important to Russia's national security to have this Syrian card. The Russian fleet is coming back. Syria has offered to allow a home base and, and repair shop and so forth be built in Tartu's uh, port. So it is very important to Russia to have that there. They do not want uh, Syria to turn into a American zone. Uh, that would be bad for Russia. What about the bigger picture? All the North African and Middle Eastern wars and unrest together, Tunisia, Egypt, Libya, Yemen, Bahrain, now Syria, each country is a unique situation, but how would you assess the overall picture? Well, there's a common threat. Yes, they're each unique, and they're each going to have a different outcome. And in some ways, we're seeing a great sorting out in the Middle East. Those states which have developed real nations underneath them, and I think you, know, you can make an argument that Tunisia and Egypt are the closest to having done that and may emerge on the other side of this with something resembling democracy, or at least in the long run, it will develop a fairly stable, pluralistic government. That's the hope. But other countries are going to crash and have not developed this unified political community, a nation state. Uh, we've seen that in Yemen. Libya certainly uh, could be, you know, Iraq crashed and burned, maybe it's being reconstituted, but certainly with Kurdistan hived off, big changes. Lebanon collapsed and burned during its civil war and uh, hasn't really put itself back together again. Syria, big question mark. Looks like it could be headed for civil war. We don't know. 
Much depends on the confessional situation. Opposition members say Syria is too mature. We're not like Iraq. We're not like Lebanon. We're not going to fall apart along confessional lines, religious lines, uh, in part because we've seen what's happened to our neighbors. The Syrian government's saying the same thing. They're saying, we are not going to see big defections in the Syrian army. Syrians are too smart to fall into the kind of conspiracies that have burnt up Iraq and Libya and allowed the Western world to go tromping in and to divide these countries and so forth. You know, they're painting this very much as a foreign conspiracy and saying that Syrians will stick with their government because they don't want to fall apart and be subject to this, um, this collapse. So we're seeing this big sorting out, I think, in the Middle East between those states that are emerging well and those which will have a much bumpier road to some post-authoritarian regime. We're seeing the end of a post-colonial order, particularly in the Mushrik, the northern, east, northeastern Arab states, where colonial powers established minority regimes in Lebanon for the Maronite Christians, in Syria by empowering the Alawites in the army, and in Iraq by setting up the Sunnis as the rulers of Iraq under the Ba'ath Party. And in all three of those countries, foreign occupying powers during the interwar years established minority regimes. Those regimes uh, are collapsing. They're not going down easily, though, because these are multi-ethnic, multi-religious societies. And uh, there's still a lot more pain. And whether the countries hold together through this process is still a big question mark. But then wouldn't you consider Iraq a special case because that was uh, taken down by the U.S. military? Uh, no, I wouldn't consider it a special case. I mean, yes, it's different, but Kurdistan had been up in arms against the central state and against the Arab domination uh, since the beginning of Iraq, just about. It had been a big trouble spot. Shiites and Sunnis had competed in Iraq. The Sunnis dominated through the Ba'ath Party and under Saddam Hussein in the same way that the Alawites dominated Syria. Yes, the Americans kicked over uh, the centralized state, and it creates a different outcome, and certainly ensured that the Kurds would get their independence or quasi-independence as they have today. Maybe there will be no foreign intervention in Syria, um, and that will lead to a different outcome. Uh, but Syria is subject to many of the same internal problems that both Lebanon and Iraq faced. How they will weather them is a big question mark. Is the situation in Syria similar to that in Libya, but with much genuine popular unrest, which is being manipulated by Western powers for their own ends? Well, uh, there are similarities. Libya is deeply divided along geographical lines and tribal lines. There's always been sort of two parts of Libya, the Tripoli part in the west and Cyrenaica, the Benghazi part in the east. That provides a fault line, and we see that fault line so clearly in the rebel movement against Gaddafi. And it explains why loyalties to Gaddafi have been much more persistent. You know, nobody in the West wants to be ruled by Benghazi. It's just that it is, this is a problem, and it, and it serves, you know, this sort of wacky guy, uh, Gaddafi. Now, in Syria, it's a very different situation because it's a religious situation. Um, it's Alawites who dominate the regime. But they have strong connections to other minorities, Christians and most particularly, who are about 7% of Syria. 
and uh, other minorities, but also many Sunnis on, you know, under the banner of Arab nationalism. And that's going to be hard to take apart. The opposition is trying to do it uh, and try to reformulate Syrian nationalism around its own banner of democracy and so forth. But we'll see how that unfolds. So it's quite different. And Syria has not lost any territory yet. In Libya, there were massive defections very early. Government people were leaving Libya. And half the country fell out of control. The Syrian army is still integral. It hasn't split. And it's suppressing every uprising, whether in the south, Dadaa, in the north, Jishashahud. You know, it's very consciously looking at, over its shoulder at Libya and saying, we do not want to be like Libya. We are not going to allow a rebel, a rebel safe zone to emerge where an alternative army could spring up and be armed and trained by the CIA or MI6, as is happening in Libya. Syrian army is going to be all over these, and that's one of the reasons they're cracking down so hard and, uh, and really driving themselves. You know, when places like Dara fall out of control, they push back in within a day or two. So, yes, there are similarities, deep divisions within the country, but ultimately, uh, at least so far, the Assad regime has kept the army together and is smashing opposition uh, strongholds. And what, what, in your opinion, would be the best outcome for the conflict within Syria? Well, you know, the best outcome didn't happen. And that may have been, you know, had the president, Bashar al-Assad, called a constitutional convention right at the beginning of this and brought together members of the opposition and the various religious groups and people loyal to the regime, upper class, lower class, you name it. And presided over an attempt to, at some peaceful form of regime change that would lead to some kind of power sharing. You know, that's what liberals, of course, and many Syrians of all stripes dreamed could happen that would avoid an Iraq or Lebanon type situation of civil war. That hasn't happened. Battle lines have hardened. The regime has demonized the opposition. The opposition is demonizing the regime. It looks like we're headed towards something that resembles civil war. Maybe the government can hold on. If it does hold on and resurrect itself and, and, and stabilize, it'll be a pariah regime in the eyes of the rest of the world. It's very hard to see how it'll reintegrate. It'll be largely bankrupt. Uh, very hard to see how it's going to reconstitute itself. So there are some dark years ahead for Syria. It's very hard to see how they'll go. It could be that Syria is very different from Iraq or Libya and that it reaches a tripping point and there are massive defections and the balance of power changes away from the regime very rapidly. Hard to project that kind of thing right now. You know, the, the model we have is Iraq and Libya, where regimes hung on for a long time and were only overturned by foreign intervention. And I don't foresee real foreign intervention in Syria. I think that the Western world is exhausted economically, militarily. Syria is a big country, 23 million people. It's the size of Iraq. And, uh, and for that reason, um, it's very hard to predict what's going to happen in Syria. And then, of course, if there is a civil war, then who knows what will become of Syria. That is true. I mean, it's hard right now to really predict a civil war because the opposition would have to get up an army 
And to do that in the face of the strength of the Syrian army as it stands today is going to be a very difficult thing. Now, the opposition is predicting that there's going to be big defections and so forth. So far, we've seen some small defections, uh, not big defections. That, that could change in the future. But even so, it's hard to see those, those defectors have to flee the country or hide underground. I mean, they're going to be punished. And how they you know, can constitute a rebel army is still unclear. Joshua Landis, thank you very much. Well, it's a pleasure talking with you, Bonnie. Speaking with Dr. Joshua Landis, today's show has been Upheaval in Syria. Dr. Landis is director of the Center for Middle East Studies and associate professor at the University of Oklahoma. He writes SyriaComment.com, a daily newsletter on Syrian politics. He has lived for over 14 years in the Middle East. Having been brought up in Beirut, he returned to the region in the 1980s to teach in Beirut and study at universities in Damascus, Cairo, and Istanbul. Most recently, he spent 2005 in Syria as a senior Fulbright Research Fellow and lived several months in Damascus in 2007. He teaches political Islam, international relations in the Middle East, Islam, the modern Middle East, culture and society in the Middle East, the U.S. in the Middle East, and other courses. Visit SyriaComment.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. That's G-U-N-S-A-N-D. B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom, that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what decides yourself.